same same platform, same layout I do with everybody. Dr. Nichols and I have not talked. Uh, she does not know what we're going to talk about. Well, she pretty much knows what we're going to talk about. But uh, I'm going to ask her the same. Only one question I ask everybody is, Chris, what is on your mind right now? What are you What have you been thinking about the last 24 or 48 hours? Well, um, the last 24 to 48 hours, really, uh, I, I've been thinking a lot about uh, keeping it green and growing. Um, I, I posted on, on social media. Um, I'm up here in north of Calgary. I, I'm in Calgary, but I was north of Calgary, just north of a town called Olds. And um, in that, where I was at, uh, we're doing a project working with farmers and ranchers. And outside of the lab where we were processing soil samples, um, there was a dust storm that came up and uh, just be, being out there, I, I went out and, and recorded it and, and being out there and seeing that. And, you know, I know this year there's been, it's been a crazy spring. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, of really strange type of weather. And I, I was saying we're expected to get snow again in the Canadian prairies this next week. Oh. Um, so it's, it's been a rough one, I think for everybody, but, um, these dust storms really have me concerned. And even in areas where there is a lot of no-till, um, or minimum till there's some residue management going on, all of those types of things. Uh, we're still seeing the dust. Um, so, you know, we had a major dust storm. Uh, didn't get much snow in southern Alberta in an area. So that was a major dust storm that happened uh, in February, actually, in southern Alberta, where there wasn't much snow. And then recently, my dad farms in Minnesota and near the South Dakota border. And there was a major dust storm in uh, South Dakota, in eastern South Dakota, uh, just in late April. Um, so, you know, these these things are are really happening in a way. And, and again, with this level of frequency, and I know Kansas and Nebraska has been tough too with, with some of these dust storms. So, um, you know, the weather so and what what's happening concerns me. Yeah. And so I think what you're also saying here is that the, the no-till, minimum till is not enough. We've got to get these acres covered in green growing species of something mm -hmm. so exactly. let's so let's talk about that now then okay Let, let's let's talk about chris your your not your first name but your acronym <laughs> of what you do which is going to lead into teaching these folks how to do these things so what does chris stand for and and what are you doing with that so chris stands for knowledge for regeneration and innovation in uh, soil systems. So the I innovation systems or soil is, is last one, but systems we added on um, because it is very much a systems approach. Um, oh, yeah. We're going to, if we're going to regenerate, we need that, that innovation and we need that systems approach. Right. So are you, are you out teaching folks how to, how to, you know, look, I, I've done all tillage my whole life. How do I, I want to be regenerative? How do I do that? Are you able to teach people how to do that? 
Yeah, um, I, I work in on several different projects. So I'm actually working with the oat grower, uh, several oat growers in um, in Saskatchewan, and they're looking at trying to. Uh, they're organic oat growers that are trying to be uh, regenerative organic, and so I said, you know, awesome. you got to look. You got to listen to Rick. Uh, you, you know, I know he's further south than you are, but we, we, we got to listen to Rick because some of these innovations. And I've got one one oat grower who's probably going to be in touch with you, Rick, because he's going to he's doing. Uh, he wants to plant his oats into some standing alfalfa. So oh, um, sweet. Yeah, that's going to work. That's going to work. <laughs> that will yeah. work. Um, that is awesome. So, okay, so let's back up just a little bit. Now, I know the audience probably wants to get into carbon here, but we gotta, we got to hang on here. Uh, let's back up now. I like to try to build a little bit of history here for everyone, Chris. So let's go back just a little bit. When did you, when did Chris Nichols know that soil was going to be my life and, and the biology that's involved with that? When did you know that? Um, I think that I, I started to know that as I was going through university, I did my undergrad at the University of Minnesota, and I got the opportunity to work in a lab and was working with mycorrhizal fungi. And I tell people all the time, I fell in love with the fungus when I was 19 years old, and I have yet to fall out of love with fungus. So the fungus that I, and, and you know, in my my personal relationships, yeah, we're, we're you know, my, my uh, significant other knows exactly the, the hierarchy of, of how things exist in our, how they are household and, you know, soil and mycorrhizal fungi sort of reign supreme. Um, so that well, rightfully was, so. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's, that's where it all kind of started. And I fell in love with the mycorrhizal fungi, continued on working with that through my master's and, and through my doctorate, um, but really got it back connected with agriculture. I grew up on a farm in Minnesota. Uh, and I think like many farm kids, um, I didn't want to have anything to do with farming when I went to university. Uh, I wanted to get out of it. And um, it, it grabs back onto you and, and doesn't let go just like soil and, and fungi. So, uh, right. it, it becomes part of who you are. And so I got the opportunity, uh, with USDA agriculture research service, uh, to work in North Dakota in the early two thousands. And at that time there was a lot of innovation. I was at a laboratory that was located in Mandan that was right across the river from Bismarck. Um, so it was in Morton County, but, you know, Burley County was on the other side. And a lot of people probably have heard various speakers from Burley County, Jay Fear and, and Gabe Brown and Kenny Miller and, and a number of uh, producers that are out there that have really led some of these innovations. But I think what really touched me with all of this was that the, the producers that were really on the edge, I mean, necessity is always the mother of invention. And so, sure. you know, these guys, margins are, are always slim in farm farming and things are always really tight. But when you're in a semi-arid environment where, you know, it was just getting tougher and tougher and tougher. And right. they had been told by researchers that what you would do is is your common practice should be growing a crop once every other year 
So originally, you know, the research at the lab that I worked in for many years um, up through the 90s had told producers that they were supposed to be doing crop fallow. Um, and, you know, we, we've learned a lot since then. And I learned a lot. And it was that environment of, I would have these farmers that would ask me questions and I'd be like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, and I'd, yeah. I'd literally go back to my office and read through books, trying to figure it all out. Yeah. Isn't that crazy though? How, how that, that, if you would have been positioned in Ohio or maybe for example, or Indiana, that may not have happened, you know? Yeah. You know, I'm always, I'm always very grateful because people are always like, well, how did you get here? And, and I was just, you know, somehow it, it's sort of like there was a, a snowball rolling downhill and I jumped on and I just never got off. And I, it, I got to go to these, I got fortunate to go to these, these spots and have these challenges. I mean, initially I wanted to be a lab rat. I didn't want to be out on the farm and now I, you know, can't get out there enough to be out there talking to farmers and ranchers and, and feeling the soil and seeing what's happening and, uh, you know, all of those things just excite me. Right. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, hey, I'm, again, folks, I'm, gonna, I'm on my phone, so it's hard for me to see the chat box. Rachel, do we have any questions that are in queue at the moment we need to, we need to address? As of right now, we do not. Nope, people are being okay. quiet. So, so guys, if you have any questions for Rick or Chris, let's 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 hear them. Yeah. Okay. All right, Chris. Let's uh, let's get a little deeper now. Um, let's talk about let's talk about. I want to talk about tillage for a minute, okay? Because this goes back to your your mycorrhizal fungi, your relationship you have with it. You know. Uh, you know way more about it than I do, but you know when I speak to the crowds, it's the it's the communication backbone of this whole network we're talking about. And there's not going to be any transactions take place across uh, across different biomes unless it's going through that fungi. So if we are tilling, are we harming that that network? And if so, is there any tillage in your mind that is acceptable? I mean, either frequency or depth or tools. So see if you can see how you can answer that. Okay. Um, well, you know, and I, and I very much appreciate what you were saying about, you know, this network, this below ground and this communication. It's, yeah. it's, it continues to astound me all the time on, on just how, how intimate all of this communication is. But what we end up seeing is with, especially with the uh, mycorrhizal fungi and primarily in uh, crop production and in rangeland, we see more of what are called our buscular mycorrhizal fungi. Uh, so these are gonna be growing into the roots. And with, with all mycorrhizal fungi, they are um, obligate biotropes. So they actually have to get, they have to be attached to a living plant. And so when you do for, for other fungi that you would have saprophytic fungi or mushroom, some of the mushroom producing fungi or other saprophytic type of fungi um, that are not mycorrhizal, they can, um, 
they will eat both living material and they can eat living material and dead material, or in some cases, just dead material, but they don't need to have a living plant as, as a host. Um, and so what ends up happening with the uh, mycorrhizal fungi is that when you do tillage, it can, it can do a couple of different things. One is that it can actually tear apart that network. It can physically break the threads because the fungal right. body are these fine threads that are in the soil. So you can physically tear that apart. And for saprophytic fungi, they could regrow and they can reattach to each other because they can utilize the carbon, the food source that comes from dead material. So they don't need to be connected to, to a plant. But for the mycorrhizal fungi that we're talking about, when you rip apart the threads, if you have a piece over here and a piece over here and a piece yeah. here that's attached to the plant, the only one that's going to be continuing to grow is the one that was attached to the plant. So you lost okay. all of that network, you know, okay. so. Is it, is it lost forever or can they reconnect over time? They won't re yeah, it's lost forever. They won't reconnect. Um, what can happen, well, I should say that entirely, but they, they can reconnect, but it's only if the distance is very short between them because what oh. can happen is those, those fragments of hyphae can grow, but they won't grow very far because they okay. don't have any more carbon resources to extend out very far. So they okay. usually what ends up happening is, you know, and so you've got to think about it like, you know, kind of like a spider web. And if you had, you know, the spider web that was attached, uh, you know, if, if you've ever seen one like out on your porch and it's just attached to the post and, you know, right. attached on the sides. And if you broke kind of, all of the threads, but one and left that just that one attached, the rest of the threads that that whole net is going to fall apart because yeah. it, it can't support that. And you, you lose all of that network and all of that communication that you had in the soil environment. And it isn't, it's communication between the plant and other plants that are in the, in the soil environment that are growing at the same time. And it's communication between the plant and a diverse array of microbes, bacteria and fungi and microscopic insects. And, you know, we're finding that it also impacts macroscopic organisms as well, that communication. Yeah. Okay. So now let's, you know, let's think about depth here now. So, mm -hmm. okay. So you've got this, well, I got so many questions. I got to. Okay, we've got the depth now. So this micro, this arbuscular mycorrhizal network, I'm assuming is not only lateral, but it's vertical as well. So yes. are, are you saying then that uh, a two inch vertical tillage is doing some major disruption to this arbuscular mycorrhizal network? Is that what you're saying? Yes, any, any type of, of soil disturbance can potentially break up this network. Um, and so, most of the activity is going to be closer to the surface. So yes, they can go deep, but most of it's going to be close to the surface. Okay. So 
in theory, I mean, obviously, then I'm not here no till no tilling. Those cultures have to cut a slot. So I mm-hmm. guess I'm disrupting that network too. Yes. There's there's nothing and and so there isn't really any good way for us not to have a certain amount of soil disturbance. And naturally you want to have that. So, you know, you could do the thing that is a hundred percent, the best absolute thing for the mycorrhizal fungi, but that isn't, these organisms work in consortia and they interact and their survival is based on these symbiotic relationships and all of these interactions and this consortia activity. So if you do something that is just for the mycorrhizal fungi, the rest of the system doesn't thrive as well. You need to have these other things going on. So, you know, kind of another example of this, Rick, is when I first moved to North Dakota and I had just finished from university and learning about mycorrhizal fungi and Tillage is a big thing, but then the next thing that they talk about is having mycorrhizal crops. And so when I first moved to North Dakota, they were growing, uh, and up here in Canada where I am, the canola is a part of of the crop rotation. That's not a mycorrhizal crop, but there's something that goes on when those non-mycorrhizal crops that are there that... The mycorrhizal fungi, as long as you're not continuously growing a non-mycorrhizal crop, that next growing season, or if you were to, you know, do some strips in your field, in a, in a canola field, do some strips of a highly mycorrhizal crop, you're kind of creating a, a shelter belt for the mycorrhizal fungi to be functioning. And they seem to thrive on some of the other activities that happen under the system of a non-mycorrhizal crop. So when they come in the next season, they can, they can be very happy. And the same thing's like, yeah. And it's the same thing with, with tillage because tillage does, if if you're, if you're managing disturbance, that is going to be the big key. So it's not a, it's not a case of, you know, we're not going to have any soil disturbance because we need to have some of that. I mean, natural ecosystems had disturbance that came from wind and water and animals. And so you're always going to have some breaking of the mycorrhizal network. Right. Okay. So we're getting, we're, this is, this is great. Okay. So now let's look at, let's look at tillage as going out and tilling a no-till field that has no cover on it versus tillage that has what's called a green manure crop growing, some species cocktail that you're going to turn down. Talk about the difference there. No green versus green manure. Talk about that. Well, and this is where I think, and again, when I talked about the fact that even with no-till systems, we're still seeing degradation. And we're still seeing loss of, of soil. Soil itself is organic. It's carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen bound to sand, silt, and clay. And so when we have a, a no-till system, you know, what, you, what you're talking about, and you have bare soil, but you don't have something that's growing there, right. the primary need for every organism is to get food. And having something green and growing is about supporting the food cycles and the food system. 
Whereas, you know, when you do tillage, I think of it like with the mycorrhizal fungi, if you do tillage, yeah, you may rip off a limb. You may, you know, do some damage to my physical body, but I can possibly survive depending on how frequent you do that because I can regrow my limbs and I can possibly survive. So how frequent you're going to do the tillage makes a difference and how, how deep and the types of tillage tools. So the whole mass of soil that you're impacting makes a difference. Right. But the most important thing to me as a, as a living organism, as mycorrhizal fungi is that I get food. And so if I don't have any food and then you start ripping off limbs, I'm really not going to survive then. Um, So that's where that green and growing is, is so critical. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I have a lot of friends that we have these conversations. I'm trying to, you know, do this as far as we can without any till. I mean, this is so it's almost impossible to, to raise row crops in these situations, but I just, you know, I feel like it's so important that we have to keep the integrity, but if we can get by, you know, is it, is it an acute situation versus uh, a long going uh, cirrhosis or whatever you want to call it? I, I think what, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like if we can keep the ground covered and, and, and we do a little bit of shallow tillage, it's going to heal pretty quickly. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's really, again, it's it, 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 primary needs, food. I need to get food in the ground as much as possible. And um, Ray Archuleta, and he didn't, he didn't use it for, for this, but he used this uh, FIST acronym, Frequency, Intensity, Scale, and Timing. Yep. FIST. And yeah. with, that, with that FIST acronym, what I, when I think about it, I want people to think about it when they're thinking about the tools that they're using, because that helps you figure out how to think about the trade-off analysis of what's happening. Okay. So again, when we're talking about tillage, it's frequency. If I do deep tillage to manage a perennial weed issue that I have, but then I don't have to do tillage again, for a year or two or three or four or five, the system's gonna be better off than if I do tillage, again, they're ripping off of the limbs. If you rip off limbs, but then you give me years to regrow that limb and extend further out, I can survive that. But if you keep, every time I regrow a limb, if you keep ripping it off, I I can't build that network any. That network's just gonna stay really small. And so, you know, thinking about the frequency, you know, and then when we're talking about intensity, it's, you know, that the, the, how much of the soil disturbance you're doing. So, you know, how, how fast are you running your tillage equipment through? Because that can also make a difference on how much of the soil is going to be doing that. The scale is, you know, the depth and the volume of soil that you're, you're interacting with. How much of that are you going to be disturbing? So what type of tillage tool are you using? And so, you know, that whole volume of soil. And then, you know, thinking about the timing, because the timing can also play a role in in this. Are you going to do it if you're going to be doing 
um, tillage at a time that could have the greatest level of impact on the mycorrhizal fungi or on the organisms that are there. So, you know, again, if they, in, in the early spring and you do a lot of tillage in the early spring, but they didn't have cover that they had into no. the fall and, and, you know, over the winter, you're, you're basically taking an organism that has been starving for months and then exposing it to a lot of tillage, um, you know, so, so that has an impact. Doing a lot of fall tillage has an impact on, you know, things like how we're going to be managing uh, the uh, soil as far as the impact of wind and water and snowfall and rain and all of those types of things. So erosion, doing a lot of fall tillage, but also how it impacts nitrogen cycles and our potential loss of nitrogen from our crop fields. Now let's stay right there now. Now let's back up now. So, okay. So if if we've got this system, this system's churning out here, and and we are are building or or uh, what's the word I want? Uh, mineralizing uh, uh, nitrogen. Okay. Mm -hmm. And is that nitrogen in a stable form then to 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 stay and winter? if we don't have a cover out there or do we need to have a cover to help what I call like soak that up and grab a hold of that? Yeah, we're gonna be better off if we can put our most of our nitrogen into various types of organic forms, either in the bodies of the plants. So again, being absorbed by the plants or in the yep. bodies of the microbes. But when, when, and especially with nitrogen, and this is, this is a thing I don't think we think about enough, is that the nutrients that we need, everybody, everybody lives off of our, our basic mineral nutrients. That mineral form, the mineral forms of those nutrients, that chemistry that's there, that mineral form of those nutrients, that is actually a toxic form as far as the molecular configuration is. It's toxic to all life. Wow. It, it, nitrates, nitrates are going to kill you. It, that's just the way that ammonia we know is, is toxic. I, sure. So, so that mineral form is a toxic form, but the reason that we will absorb that and use it is that because it's a toxic form in our, in the cells of living organisms, plants and animals, those toxic forms you're, you're basically, it drives the reaction rates to convert those into organic forms. So it actually helps to support the chemical reactions okay. because the, so, it doesn't want to be toxic. So how do we stimulate that group of microbes to do that nitrogen fixing for us then? How do we do that? So there, there are a number of different ways in which we want to do that. I mean, one is that we want to have as much biological activity going on so that most of the nitrogen is going to get absorbed into the bodies of the organisms so that okay. that then can become available over time. You also have organisms that do nitrogen fixation. So you're planting soybeans. They're going to have nitrogen fixers that are associated sure. with them. And those are obligate nitrogen fixers. They need to be associated with the living plant and they have particular living plants that they associate with. 
We also have a lot of free living nitrogen fixers. So one of the things that has been discussed recently is talk about nitrogen fixing corn, which it isn't really nitrogen fixing corn because it's not like a legume where that's a, it's a, it's an obligate relationship on the part of the bacteria and it's associated it's free, yeah. with, it's, it's, it's a free liver. It, it lives, yeah. but it is, it does utilize the carbohydrates that come out of the corn and the corn, especially where the crown roots are, um, what that does for that nitrogen fixation to occur, it has to happen anaerobically. So, but oftentimes it also needs sunlight to help to provide the energy. So how do you get sunlight and be anaerobic at the same time for the free livers? What happens is that the, the grasses, and we can see this with corn, with the brace roots, what they will do, and you can see this sometimes, you'll see that it'll get kind of like syrup that will be leaking yeah. out of the brace roots. Oh, and yeah. so what that's doing is that's creating a, almost like a it's, a it's a carbohydrate syrup biofilm that's on those brace roots. So the bacteria that's under that can fix nitrogen in an anaerobic way because oxygen can't get through that syrup that's, that's on there. That's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. yeah. So corn does that, but, but all grasses have had this association with free living nitrogen fixers. That's why, you know, when you look at, at, a, at a prairie ecosystem, at some of our natural ecosystems, we don't have to go out there and fertilize them because they naturally have figured out ways to create a mechanism to get what it is that they need. I see. Okay, so um, I don't care what what style or what type of react, or, or, are you okay with, with these bioreactors? Bio and like, I've got a Johnson Sioux got started. Uh, uh, you know, I hope in nine months, this thing's ready to, to, to produce something. I mean, is this a way to get get some of that back into that biome and turn some of these folks back on? I mean, I know they've been out of they've been out of work so long. I mean, the synthetic fertilizers have put most of the microbes out of work. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's part of the drag when you when you are in this process of shifting and you get this delay. I think it's part of that. Um, but what do you think about these bioreactors and and what should we be putting in these bioreactors to then maximize what we're going to get at the other end when they, when they're ready to to uh, what's the what's the the machine called that I've lost my brain here yeah the, uh, the yeah the to pull it out right to make yeah. the tea yeah right yeah to to do those types of things and and so um, what we've got and. I think that there's there, there's some value to, to those types of systems. But okay. like anything that we do, we have to be cautious of doing things in isolation and thinking that this is going to be the solution. Again, like you know, going to no-till by itself, it's not going to work. If you're going to be adding microorganisms to the soil you're gonna need to make sure that those microorganisms can get fed. Okay. And so 
you want to make sure that the food source is, is still out there. You also want with adding microorganisms to the soil, you want to make sure that those microorganisms are either a very diverse community or are going to be helping to support a very diverse community when it gets out into the soil. We oftentimes, again, like with nitrogen fixation, we all, we were obsessed with, okay, let's get nitrogen fixing corn. We're just gonna make, do genetic transformation of, of the corn and of the rhizobium and make it so that they can work together. If we yeah. know if we know the genes that are involved in that relationship in legumes like soybeans, why can't we just clone those genes into corn? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and we as scientists have tried to do this unsuccessfully because it doesn't quite work that way. It's a very complex relationship that exists yeah. between the two. So you want to make sure when it is that you're adding microorganisms that you're adding a diverse community because of these consortia of interactions that we don't fully understand. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a microbiologist and I could, I could work for the rest of my life looking, you know, under the microscope, looking at DNA, doing all of these things. Right. I could have an army of a thousand or a million people doing this for the rest of their lives. And we still would not understand it. There, there's no way we're going to understand this, the complexities that exist there. So oftentimes I get a little bit, I, I hesitate to recommend a lot of bio uh, amendments, yeah. biological amendments. One, because first off, you got to really make sure that you are thinking about feeding them. So, you know, people will do compost teas, but you're adding compost teas is about adding a whole bunch of organisms and not any, really any food. So, because they've already eaten the food in the tea. So yeah. now how are we going to make sure that they're going to get fed and every organism, even with the mycorrhizal fungi, you know, we think of these things as beneficial, but every organism lives for its own sake. On some level, the fact that mycorrhizal fungi live off of another living organism, they are technically parasites. Yeah. They're living off of another living organism, but it provides That's... some benefits. Okay, so you, you've, said, you've said several times now, we've got to feed these microbes. Let's, let's go there now. I'm assuming we're talking about photosynthesis and how much sugar and oxygen we can pump into that ground. That's mm -hmm. my my little way of talking about it. Now, give us your more technical, you know, go deep here, Chris. What what do we need to do as producers out here to really feed these microbes? Well, the first thing is, as we've been talking, making sure as many days of the year you have something growing. I challenge producers up here in Canada, is I've told producers up here in Canada that you have a minimum of a 260 day growing season. Oh. It's not a season in which you're growing one cash crop. It's how you need to be having something growing for at least 260 days. And that is really, it's a, that's, that's a minimum start for me. It actually yeah. should be a lot more than that. And so, sure. you know, where you're at, Rick, and you know, you need to be 
looking at it at, you know, at least 300, probably 320. I would say closer to 320 to, to, yeah, to 330. I mean, and, and yeah. it's, it's possible for us to do that. We just have to think about things and the plants that we're using and choosing differently than we have in the past. So when you're looking at cover crops and companion crops, making sure that you're choosing the ones that are going to be tolerant to the cold if you're in that environment. Uh, you know, you talked about we were in Arizona, that's an entirely different thing where you now have to figure out how to have some plants that are gonna be growing, you know, in the, in the very high temperatures. All of these right. things, it, it takes us thinking differently than we normally have, yeah. but we can do it. Oh yeah, and see this, this goes back, let's go back to Ray again. Ray and his group, you know, Gabe and those guys, you know, the six principles of soil health, number five, in my opinion, is context, okay? Mm -hmm. That's what you're talking about here. You've got to understand where you are in the world. Yes, the four, the first four principles are going to work everywhere around the world, but what are we going to plant? How are we going to terminate? What crops are we going to grow together? All of these things make a big difference in success here. Yeah. Yeah. And I have, so, you know, and speaking of the principles of soil health, I have six principles of soil health. They're a little bit different than that because I, I haven't added context well, in there, but the one, the one that I've got, so, you know, we've got the, the keeping it green and growing, uh, you know, um, we've got the, the diversity that you're going to yep. be adding to the system. Uh, and that diversity for me is at all levels. It's plants, animals, microbes, Every, exactly. every level of diversity that you need to be looking at. Um, then we're looking at uh, reducing disturbance, but I don't say complete no-till because it's reducing disturbance. We're looking at how we're gonna manage disturbance. Because again, we don't want a system that's not ever gonna have a certain amount of disturbance. You're gonna have animals. You're gonna have, you know, in, in whatever type of a thing, you're gonna have some disturbance. And then, right. you know, it's the, it's the protection, the residue armor, and the best protection you can have is going to be a living plant as opposed to dead. And just thinking about that as residue armor, that, that armor, it's, it's, you know, you've got, if you just have a um, dead residue, it's kind of like just wearing a jacket, but if you have living material it's like a kevlar vest because oh. that living material can absorb a lot more energy than the than the than the just the jacket can than the dead material the dead material can only absorb molecularly it only has the capacity to absorb a certain amount of energy but yeah. the living material has the capacity to absorb a lot more energy so it's better protection it's that Kevlar, it's the better protection that you have with the living material. So, you know, you can absorb wind and water better. You can absorb solar radiation, all of the energy forces that are impacting that soil surface. Um, sure. So, you know, the principles almost, again, they're, they're, they're so integrated that they feed into each other. You know, you, right. you keep it green oh. and growing, you have to have biodiversity. If you, right. you know, want to have good arbor, you have to have it be living, you know, all of these things. And then, you know, the livestock, I think, is an important principle that you have there or some sort of 
animal impact. Even if you don't right. have livestock in your operation, having some sort of, of larger impact on the plant leaf tissue is going to make a difference on how the plant reacts uh, on a physiological level and what it does to stimulate more sugars coming out of the roots. Um, so you want to have that, that level of impact. And then what I, the one that I've, I've added to this is back to what you were talking about of um, removing uh, or reducing off-farm and or synthetic inputs. So yes. utilizing that, that on-farm cycling of inputs. And even in, again, you know, like you being organic, I work with organic producers and I work with non-organic producers and with organic producers, you can be making many of the same mistakes that non-organic producers make. Just because you're choosing different chemistry doesn't mean that you're not making the same errors. Well, that's true. Um, so, so we have to look at how all of these things can function together. And that's why, you know, reducing the inputs is more than just the synthetic inputs. It's you know looking at how you're going to be managing uh, manure and compost and uh, yeah. other types yeah. of, of of inputs that you have in the system. Um, you know, organic fertilizers. All of these things become a way of looking at it because when you add those inputs, and you you hit on this, Rick, is is that has basically reduced, been responsible for reducing a large amount of our microbial population. Yeah. Because what the yeah. microbes do, pretty much every microbe that's in the soil, and there are millions of different species of microbes that are in the soil. And what they do is they are either directly or indirectly involved in nutrient cycling in some way, shape or form, whether, you know, some of them it's more just phys physical impacts on the environment, you know, some right. it's, it's direct, but, but in some way, because again, that is the main way in which food carbon gets into that environment is yeah. you have to get it from photosynthesis. And if a photosynthesizer needs nutrients and that those nutrients, that plant food, all of those organisms are, are some way directly or indirectly involved in that. And when that happens, when we add a lot of inputs, we basically outsource the jobs of those microbes. Yeah. And when you don't have a job, yeah. you don't get fed. And if you don't get fed, you're going to die. Yeah, you're out. Yeah, you're out. Yeah, yeah. And so that's really what's what's happened in this system. See, uh, okay, let me, I got I've always had this thought. I don't know if this is true or not. I have no evidence of this other than what I see on my own farm. But I think, Chris, that, that as these, these hybrids and these varieties of soybeans are being bred, I think the association with the mycorrhizal is, is, is there, it's losing that association. I can yes. see it happening. The latest and greatest hybrids do not work well in our system. Yeah, yeah. It's, they're losing the association, not just with the mycorrhizal fungi, but with a number of different microbes. We see, you know, you're, we're seeing varieties of soybeans that have difficulty forming nodules. 
Um, you know, we're, we're seeing these, these impacts and because a lot of the breeding programs are done under high input situations. So, you know, when you're, when you're doing the breeding and you're doing that, that selection, the first things you're going to be looking for are, you know, you may control for one particular thing, but you're going to make sure that it has plenty of nutrients. You know, so, so that's, that's what it is, is, is we've, we've, and I've said this several times is, you know, we basically have selected with our, with our breeding programs, we've selected for the weakest and stupidest among us. We've selected for the weakest and stupidest because it doesn't know. We, we basically breed under these coddled conditions where we give it everything except for maybe one thing that we're trying to test if it will, if it will work without, or, you know, we're, we're breeding for highest yield and breeding for high yield is actually high yielding for a plant to produce a lot of grain, to produce a lot of progeny for an individual plant, that is actually not what the plant wants to do. That is, right. a, that is a sign of weakness. And it's a sign of, you know, or, or that you need to be something like an early successional plant that's a weedy plant that needs to cover, produce a lot of seeds and cover the soil with, with plants that aren't going to grow for very long, but they're just going to at least yeah. protect that soil and start building that soil right. environment. That's what, that's what they do. And they're, they're so, so what we're doing when we're producing, when we're breeding for higher yielding is we're breeding for weakness in the progeny because normally you, you don't produce a lot of progeny so that that individual, you give those individuals, you create the best chance to survive everything that they possibly could need. And you put a lot of energy into that individual and a lot of resources into that individual. And that's also why we see these issues with um, nutritive quality or nutrient density is that what, what what the plant wanted to put into its progeny was the nutrition that that progeny needed. Well, when you're told that you just have to make a whole bunch of progeny, all that you have, the main resource you have is simple carbohydrates and you don't have the energy to, I mean, you got to make a whole bunch of progeny, a whole bunch of seeds, and you don't have the energy to make the the complex nutrients that are needed to go into that seed so that it can survive. See, this is exactly that you explained that so well. This is exactly what I see when the seed company wants to come and do a test plot and they bring their latest and greatest stuff and it just flops every time. Yes. So thank you for explaining that. Um, I thought that's what was happening. I'm not blaming anybody that they're doing this on purpose. I'm just making an observation that I think we're losing those associations and you're in agreement. So, yeah. You know, and then again, it's it, like you, I don't blame the, the seed companies. It's not because, because our perspective is, you know, we want to have higher yielding and that's what we need to have. And that, that drives everything becomes going back to that FIST acronym. Everything becomes a trade-off analysis. You need to look at where carbon and, and carbon is the big thing that you're trading, where carbon goes 
and where carbon has to go and what choices the plant has to make in how it's going to allocate carbon. So again, yeah. if your choice is, is I got to make a lot of progeny, I got a whole lot of carbon that's used for that. Okay. I can't make so let's, let's say, okay, so let's talk about carbon now. Mm -hmm. Three forms of carbon, right? You got solid, gas, and electric. Yeah. Let's talk about, first of all, I want to talk about the importance of carbon in this cycling system. And then we'll go on to these carbon markets if we got time. I, I don't care if we get there or not. But what tell us about the three types of carbon and how are they utilized and how do we maximize what we can do with each one of those phases of carbon? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can start off with, with sort of the gaseous phase because that's, that's a lot of where this starts is CO2. Right. You have in, in the atmosphere. Um, and that CO2, the, the plants will absorb that CO2 to create sugar and oxygen. So you right. take CO2, uh, carbon dioxide, and then you take uh, water and you make sugar, C6H12O6, and you make yep. oxygen. And so that's, that's kind of the, the, the basic first. So you're now, the plant is using the energy of the sun to transform a gas into a, it is a solid, but it's a, it's a soluble solid. It will dissolve in water on a, on a molecular level. So it's, okay. you know, the carbon itself isn't a liquid. It's just dissolved in sugar, when you, when you put mixed sugar in, in your coffee or your tea, it's, it's still solid on a molecular okay. level, but it's dissolved in the water. It fits between the water molecules. So that's you're just taking okay. something that's large and breaking it down to individual molecules. Okay. And is it, and that are we, is it stable at this point or is it, uh, is erosion going to, could erosion, is going to take it away, right? Well, and you, yes, you can lose some of the carbon because now it's, it's, it's in a liquid form. It's dissolved organic carbon is typically what it's called DOC dissolved organic carbon. And that dissolved organic carbon. Um, yes, it, it, it's, it's dissolved in liquid. So if you, you could have a lot of rain or, or water that could wash that away, yeah. it, it does, right. it can leach out of the fields and you'll see that sometimes, um, carbon, uh, the, the solid carbon. So, so when you get very condensed solid carbon, uh, you get it, it that's why our soils start to look black and brown is right. solid, almost pure carbon is graphite. That's okay. Solid carbon that you see that black graphite, you know, that you have on pencils. Yep. It's, that's, that's almost pure carbon that you have there. If you take graphite under time and pressure, you condense that on a molecular level even closer together and it changes color from black to eventually a clear for, for diamonds. So, you know, you get, this, you get this spectrum, but you can have black diamonds, which are not as condensed as 
it would be when they get to be white diamonds or clear diamonds. So the clarity of a diamond is based on that time and pressure that puts those carbon atoms, mushes okay. them really close together and they're, it's, it's pure carbon. So okay. on, on the spectrum, and I know that, you know, we may not care a lot about diamonds, but the, but the whole, the whole thing is, is, is getting an understanding of like that you said, the solid form of carbon. And then when it is right. what would be kind of the liquid carbon that we talk about a lot of times, um, Christine Jones talks about, uh, I'll talk about liquid carbon, um, various sure. types of other people will talk about liquid carbon. And again, it isn't that the carbon itself is liquid, it's dissolved in a liquid, but you get that carbon then that because it's dissolved, it allows it to cross membranes. So it can be absorbed by other organisms. Okay, all right, so now, Let's talk about the Wild West, these carbon markets. And with, you know, first of all, I, everything you've described has got to be immensely difficult to measure and, and mm -hmm. accurately and repeatably and cheaply. You know, I don't think yes. you can check off all three of those boxes. So in your opinion, Chris, if you were going to build a, a, a model that we should be following, what would it look like, in your opinion, to monitor, or, or, or you know, I don't want yeah. to say, I, I don't even like the word carbon market. I don't like any of that. I, I don't know what we're going to call it, but how are we going to get the farmers paid for doing something regenerative to the soil, and what is your metric going to be? So um, up here in Canada, I'm involved in a project with the organization called Food Water Wellness Foundation. And they work with a, another company called Envirometrics that's out of the Netherlands. And what's excited me about the project that I'm doing with both of those groups is that we're doing measuring and monitoring of carbon. And we're taking actual measurements from the soil. So we take soil samples and okay. um, we take them down to a meter and oh. we break them into different depths. And so we're looking at, at you know, carbon, not just at the surface, but carbon at depth. Right. Um, and uh, then measuring um, the, the carbon that we have there and we're trying to use some different tools. So we do some direct measurements where you're just measuring uh, carbon, organic and inorganic carbon, total, total carbon. But then we're also trying to utilize various types of uh, spectroscopy, different wavelengths of light to actually get a better understanding of the different forms of carbon. Because again, you can have graphite that's really stable and graphite could be, you know, if you have a lot of graphite in the soil or if you had a lot of diamonds in the soil, you're sequestering a lot of carbon. Because yeah. it's there yeah. and it's not going to, it's not going to break down. It's not going to go back up into the atmosphere as CO2 very quickly. But right. our issue with carbon and the way in which we're trying to stabilize carbon from an agricultural perspective and grow soil is that we're utilizing biology to do that. And when you use biology to do that, Every organism, just like us, we do respiration. We take in 
food, we take in carbon-based food, and then we give off part of that carbon as CO2 that goes back up as that gas back up in the atmosphere. So one of the biggest issues for a very long time when we looked at agriculture, the, we looked at agriculture as a potential way to be able to take carbon out of the atmosphere because it naturally used plants to do this. So we're taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and the soil itself is the largest reservoir of carbon. There's more carbon in the soil than the amount of carbon in all of the organisms on the surface of the soil and the atmosphere combined. This is the solid form you're talking about. Yeah. So, but you know, the, so all of the gaseous form and all of the plants and animals on the surface of the soil, if you took all of the carbon that was in all of those organisms and all of the gases in the atmosphere, yep. there's more carbon that's in the soil environment the microbes that are there, the soil itself, there's more carbon there than there is in all of the life above and all of the gases that's, in the atmosphere. That's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it so, is. It, now, Chris, is this a very well-known fact or is this, mm -hmm. I mean, this has been around, I mean, you've known this a long yeah. time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we look at agriculture when we're, when we're trying to take carbon out of the atmosphere, there are two ways in which it can get done. One is it can naturally get absorbed into the oceans. But what we found is when it gets absorbed into the oceans when you take CO2 and absorb it in the oceans, it actually becomes carbonic acid and it acidifies the ocean. So we're going to, we don't want to put a lot of carbon into the oceans because we're now getting that acidification. And, you know, that's what they talk about with bleaching of the coral reefs and all of those types of things. So we're, we're, you know, impacting, have a large impact on ocean life with that level of acidification. So the best place to put the carbon back into is to go back into the soil. It has a huge capacity to be able to contain even more carbon than it already has. And you're talking about, again, back to the beginning of the show, can't cover the ground with cover crops, something mm -hmm. green growing all the time or as yep. many days as possible. Yes. Okay, so yep. let's, now, let's now talk about the, the CO2 gaseous form here. I mean, I got to imagine that in the month of May, when every tillage tool across the Midwest is running, the amount of CO2 going up has got to be outrageous. I mean, do you yes. have numbers on that? So what we've seen um, is that we, we see an increase in um, CO2 over in, in well, in the Northern hemisphere, you know, in what we would consider to be, well, in both hemispheres, whatever you consider yep. to be winter, um, we see an increase in CO2 then because there's fossil fuel burning to heat homes yep. and all of those types of things. So you see a great increase with that. And then you also will see an increase with the, the soil disturbance that you're happening with tillage in the spring. 
And then what we'll see is, um, and NASA created this wonderful video of a, a year in life of CO2. Um, so you can Google this video. It's a great video by NASA. It was actually done back in 2005, but it's, it's a great video because what they do is you can see they have carbon that's basically symbolized as red in the atmosphere. Oh. So the atmosphere in the Northern hemisphere is pretty much red. And then as plants start growing, it changes to a green and a, and a, a blue color because we're now absorbing as the plants are growing, you're absorbing that CO2 back into the, back into the ground. And so the more that we can keep the plants growing, the more that we can be able to absorb that CO2. Yeah. It, so so that, that's what it is that we wanna do. When it comes to, and you were talking about sort of this wild west with the carbon markets, and what we've done is Again, we, I get, I get frustrated a lot of times, Rick, because it's like, we, we think like humans and I, and I say this and then I'm like, but we think like humans and we need to not think like humans. And it's, and I'm like, yeah, but you are a human. So how do, how do you, how do you justify this? Yeah. And, um, yeah. But it's, it's one of those things that we, we need to, we need to not be thinking like humans. So part of this the biggest issue that we have is that instead of thinking about carbon cycling and carbon flows from a systems dynamic, we're going to attach a particular practice or activity to carbon. So, okay. you know, because they saw this huge release of CO2 when you do tillage, if you do tillage, that's, it, it's, it's all bad. The practice is all bad. But again, right. as we were talking before, there's a certain amount of soil disturbance that's part of the natural cycles and flows. So we can't say that it's all bad. Yep. There's, there's a value yep. to it. So yeah, what we want to yeah. do is not attach particular practices because we don't know so much about what's happening below ground. If I say that one tool does this, I'm not looking at all of the rest of the system. Yeah, yeah I, I understand what you're where, saying. And that's where I think we've gone wrong. And so again, this group that I'm working with here, we're doing measurement, but direct measurement is can be extremely expensive. So we're trying yeah. to do a couple of different things. One, we're trying to look at different tools where we could use these different wavelengths of light spectro spectroscopy in order to be able to take a look at the different types of carbon because not all carbon is equal. Sugar is less stable than protein and if you have sugars or proteins that may be bound to clay minerals, they're more stable than sugars or proteins that are free in the soil. So there's a lot of these variations in how carbon looks. And that goes back to what you were talking about. It's difficult for us to measure that and know for sure if the carbon you're measuring is going to stay in the soil for two months, 12 months, two years, 
15 years. Well, yeah. we can't, we can't, we can't define that very easily. Um, yeah. So what yeah. we're trying to do with this group is we're taking measurements, but then we're also looking at um, a lot of different types of geospatial data, looking at uh, productivity and not just looking, you know, at greenness indices, but looking at different type of spectral spectral indices to understand the, the how the, the health of the plant. We look at topography, we look at climate parameters. Uh, there's about what we've got is for, for kind of everywhere, we're looking at combining about 250 layers or types of geospatial data with the, the ground truth data that we get from our soil samples and then create what they refer to as using machine learning and iterative models. So instead of saying this practice does this, it's right. I took the sample and I have this value. And then these this 250 bits of data also tells me more about that. And so I can now apply that to not just where I took that sample, but to a location that looks very similar. I get that. I, I, I get that. That's the only way you're going to go to scale on this thing. Yeah. So yeah. you're trying. Okay. So Chris, are you saying then that you, you know, for lack of a better term, are you going to have a, a measuring device that any of us can use and how long will it take to get this read? I mean, how, what's the time going to, what are you hoping for here? Five minutes, you have an answer, an hour. What do you think? Well, so again, what, what we're doing, and we're trying to do this to scale. So we did a pilot project up here in Alberta and we took uh, 400, about 450 samples, soil samples down to one meter uh, throughout the, the province of Alberta. Um, and it's, it's roughly about in the agricultural zone. So I think it's about 54 million acres of land and we took 450 samples across a diverse ecosystem from north, south, east, west, dry, right. semi-arid to, to more subhumid environments, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And we've created these maps for the province of Alberta, for the agricultural region, for those that whole 54 million acres We've created maps that have what's called a, a 30 meter resolution. So every 30 meters, we can predict how much carbon is there. Wow. On, wow. In, in 500, in, in, in 54 million acres. And you did this in one year of being in, in Alberta? We did this, well, I started with this team um, and, you know, we, we, we're we're ambitious now. We're 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 gonna hopefully be able to get it going. So we started on this project back in 2019, and then you know with COVID and all of these other types of things, we've had you know a bunch of different issues. So uh, in um, early 2022, so just this this last winter, we finalized getting all of our data and creating these the the, the maps. And wow. then what we're doing now is we're going to go back to 
some of these sites as well as some other sites and sample again. And then that's gonna just help to improve the resolution and improve yeah. how well how well our measurements are and how the much accuracy, carbon yeah. we're accruing. So that accuracy right. that's going to be set up there. And, and so we've got now um, and, you know, we're getting a team together on, on being able to do this very quickly. Um, and so as, as we continue to do this, I think this is the way in which we could get, you know, better stable carbon markets. They're not going to be based right. on practices. And we're utilizing well, the, machine learning and iterative models so that they're they're constantly learning to be better. The accuracy is constantly improving. Yeah. So obviously on um, nutrient density has got to be going up. So there's another way to have a, a check in your system, checking yep. the nutrient is, is it increasing or decreasing in that bushel of wheat or whatever, yeah. uh, triticale or whatever the product here is. Um, Oh man, this is this is exactly why I wanted you on the show. I mean, this is perfect. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, if I was a, I, of course, I am a farmer, but if I was a buyer of carbon, see, I think we often forget about the buyers. We got to make sure mm -hmm. that the buyer is going to agree to the method that is being used here. What if the buyers say, "I don't accept that that way you're you're monitoring carbon," so. You've got to have this work for both sides of the equation here. And what you're telling me, I would be happy with being on either side of this equation. Yeah, yeah. We've we've been talking to various types of buyers, um, various ends of, of looking at this. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, the buyers are thinking about one way to deal with this whole Wild West thing is that you, you give the carbon credits a, a certain amount of like a grade, a certain amount of value. If you if you have A grade credits, you're, you're here. If you have C grade credits and a lot of the grade is figuring out more about how you're measuring it and your level of accuracy. And, and so with what it is that we're trying to do because we're getting this, this really good level of accuracy. And, you know, we've worked with a team of researchers that have a very good research publication rate. So, you know, they're, the methodology that they're using is solid. And so, you know, the more that you get these grade A credits that you can market, you know, they're gonna have a little bit higher of a value, but then we're also looking at sort of creating a, a marketplace system that would also have a, a fund associated with it so that part of what you get from marketing the credits would go into a fund because the market's going to fluctuate as every sure. market does but the individual producer shouldn't be penalized for those fluctuations in the market and at the same, you know, it's kind of like with our with our growing our crops. There's a the U.S. has a has a floor that the the crop prices never can fall below this certain value, and sure. and so you know the whole idea is that we'll have this fund that can help with that, and we also get issues that can be happening with this where, um, you know, we've got a year like this year 
that, you know, we're getting snow again in Alberta. We're not going to get the same level of productivity. So when you're, when you're selling credits, you're selling credits on the future, but the future is not certain. But you right. don't want the farmer to have to pay for the uncertainty of the future. Right. That's a good way to look at it. That's a very good way to look at it. Um, we have rambled. Our, this has been awesome. <laughs> Rachel, are there, are there questions that we... I can't see much here, Rachel. Can you pick out a couple questions, please? I know one question just came across my phone. I saw uh, from Paul. Uh, I, I didn't get the whole question, but when, when will this be available? I'm, I'm going to assume he went, he was going to say in the U.S. or other locations. Mm -hmm. So what do you, what's your plan there, Chris? So we are working with a couple of different groups in the U.S. Um, where we're, we're hoping um, to start getting the utilization of this in the U.S. Um, we're working with a group called Hudson Carbon um, out of upstate New York. Um, and uh, we're working with a, another group out of North Dakota called EcoBalance. Um, so we're trying to get you know uh, this working there, and then we're working with a, a, within the marketplace. We're working with an organization called B Carbon that does the verification of, of the credits. And so the third, our, the third party, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so we're 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 working on trying to get some of these all of these things into place. Um, and you know, looking at this within the U.S., our, our, our teams are are very excited uh, to be able to try and scale this up, and they are excited about uh, the team, especially in the Netherlands, is really excited about you, the you going into the U.S. because there is a lot of data um, that already exists in the U.S. to help to generate. You know, I talked about these 250 layers of, of data. But then yeah. you, you confirm that with soil samples that have been taken. And NRCS has taken a number of samples, USDA, sure. RS, research scientists. And so all of that data that's freely available, um, the team has kind of put that together. And roughly at this point in time, we that team has estimated that we have about almost 19,000 points throughout the US that we have data on and we've got about you know 100,000 samples from those 19,000, roughly about 19,000 locations so yeah. that we can start building. So you, you sort of build, it's called a data cube. You build sort of a 3D layer map of what the carbon looks like and it's 3D, so it goes to depth. Um, and then uh, you're, you're looking at how that's gonna be put together. Uh, and then, you know, we do a, it's an innovative sampling design where we don't have to do a normal grid sampling or random sampling. The, the sampling design utilizes the computer technology to determine where are the most unique locations. So we may know what, you know, if you've got a little dip in your field, it can see that there's going to be a difference. You know, we all, every farmer, you know, spots in your field that are better than sure. other spots. Sure. With all of the data that we put together, it treats all of those spots as unique locations. So you go and you sample the unique locations as well as the, the known locations, but it reduces the number of samples you have to take. So we're taking... Oh, roughly uh, about four samples per quarter section. 
of land. Okay. Okay. Um, and normally you're going to take somewhere between 20 to 50 samples on 100 acres. That's a normal random grid sampling right. type of design. Right. Um, right. So, so we're, you know, have really reduced. And again, we say roughly because if you've got right. a lot of topographical differences in that quarter section and everything, it's going to treat the more, the more unique your landscape is, yeah. <laughs> the more unique spots you're going to have. Well, that's how you can move across big acres too in a hurry right. because of the, of the frequency of points you're taking. Yep. Um, Rachel, do you have a question there, please? Rachel, let me see if I can get to the chat. I can Chris. get to the chat here. Yes, I can do you have a question? Okay. Yeah, go, do you have a question there, Rachel, that you could ask, please? Um, have you answered any of these? I doubt it. Okay, um, so how important is the microscope in understanding everything going on in soil? Um, okay. I Hey, Kristen, can you, if you don't mind, answer that your way from your point of view? And I have a microscope sitting in my office, so answer it from the farmer's point of view. Thank you. Yep. Yep. So, uh, from a from a research scientist point of view, and uh, because of the because of the complexity of the organisms that are there and what's going on, and looking at that complexity, looking through a microscope isn't going to be telling you much about everything that's happening. Um, so from, from a research data point of view, it doesn't really give you all of that much, that much information. But I think from a farmer point of view, and, and Rick, you can, you can answer this too, but I think from a farmer point of view, what it does is it's given us and, and farmers an appreciation for something that they normally can't see. And it's, it's fascinating to see what's there with the microscope and recognize that diversity and that complexity. Because me just saying it's so complex you can't even imagine it is, is not something that we can, we can fully understand. Um, right. And if I can just digress for a little bit and, and go off, off a little bit, but there was oh, yeah. a story that was, was told um, to me at one point in time, uh, there was a woman that I met who taught at a, uh, a school for the deaf. And she had a student, it was at an inner city school, and she had a student that um, had a tendency to be very disruptive in the classroom and would be throwing things and doing things like that. And that, that student, she had been warned about, and one day she, you know, was before the student was going to be in her class, she sat and talked to that, that student. And she asked that student why he did what he was doing. And, and he said, well, you know, in, in his home life, you know, his, his family, his dad would, would throw things when, you know, he wanted attention. And, um, and she said, she told him, she said, but it makes me very afraid. And, and he was like, why does it make you afraid? And the connection there was a lot of the fear from when you throw things is what you see and what you hear. And because he couldn't hear that level of fear, the loud noises, the crashing that was happening was not something that he could understand. 
And so he yeah. didn't understand that it was frightening. And so it made me think about when I would be talking to people about microbes, because, because you can't see them, it's hard for you to understand that they have a role that is far more important than the plants and the animals you see on the surface. They do more things in a day than the plants and animals do in a day. And, and how, do you, how could you possibly understand that if you can't see it? Because we, again, we're human. We're very visual in, in how we wanna do that. So I think the microscope has been for, for lay people and for farmers and, and for citizens, you know, across the environment. I encourage people to get a microscope if you want to get a microscope because it does give you that connection then. Now you can hear, you know, the, the, the thing always is, is does it, does it, if a tree falls all over in the forest and no one's around, does it make sound? Yeah. You know, um, yeah. It, that it, yeah. It's, it, it produces sound waves, but the whole idea of sound is those waves being absorbed, absorbed by the, uh, an organism, you know? So right. that's, that's the difference that you have there. So right. again, from my perspective, I don't think a microscope is all that useful for us understanding what's happening now, but I think that it's a, it's a wonderful tool for, for farmers and ranchers. And yeah. Rick, you can expand on that too. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I just want to say a couple of things, Chris. Uh, I don't know what most of the things in there are called. I, I, don't, I don't know as though I need to know. Here's what I look at. When I start to look at something first in the system, I don't see very much thing, very many things swimming around. Then as you build your system, more and more are flying by all the time. That tells me then we are gaining because there's mm -hmm. more microbial life. That, that's how I look at it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know what they're called. I know what a couple of them are called, but that's it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, Rachel, another question. Okay. Um, how does a new plant plug into the greater network since we are primarily grower, growing annuals, including covers? That's a great question. That's, that's a really good question. And, you know, we sort of talked about, as I said, you have to have a living plant. So... Yeah between the periods of time where you have with this mycorrhizal network, between the periods of time where you don't necessarily have a living plant and you want that to be as short of a period of time as possible, the, the network um, goes into kind of a resting stage. It goes dark. It, it just isn't, it isn't active. And when that's happening, again, this is where the importance of having something growing as many days as possible is, is really crucial because the longer period of time that that network is dark, the more that that network could be attacked by other organisms or the chemistry in the soil could be breaking it down because it's not, it's not functioning. It's just sort of sleeping. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, thinking of Rip Van Winkle and sleeping for as long as, as if, 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 he was actually outdoors and there wasn't anything protecting him in his bed, he would not have survived for that long period right. of time that he was sleeping. So, right. you know, it's, it's, we want to look at the period of time that the network is sleeping. The minute that a plant starts growing, the plant will put off 
put out exudates. So even that seed that germinates and that young seedling, it starts to put off exudates to try and get the network, get the fungal hyphae to grow into its roots. And so what it will do is, you know, it gives off those exudates to give that network a little bit of food. And then that network will start to grow. It'll get hyphae that the threads will go to those roots. And if it gets enough food and has enough time. So when we do tillage, the other thing that can happen with some of our tillage is we may not completely destroy the network, but if we do deep tillage where we do inversion, we're gonna take most of the network that's at the surface and put it down. And then when that yeah. seedling germinates, what ends up happening is those exudates trigger that network, the hyphae to try and grow to those roots, but it doesn't always make it all the way. If it's too far down, it can't make it all the way. And so then it can't tap into that network. The other thing is, is if you do have living plants and you plant another plant, so like you did with your, your soybeans into the alfalfa, the network that's on the alfalfa can start growing into the soybeans. So the network can connect different plants to each other. So if a network is existing in one plant, that network can be connected to another plant. And even if the network is different species, so you may have some species of, of mycorrhizal fungi that are growing on the alfalfa, and then you have on one alfalfa plant, you have some species that are growing on another alfalfa plant, and then you have one that starts growing on the soybeans, they can all actually connect to each other. So different species can connect to each other, different mycorrhizal species connect to each other and different plants can be connected by the same species or by multiple species. Okay, all right, now, what, has, what are the plants that have the best symbiotic relationship? I mean, if I was to plant soybeans, what would be a companion crop that would, would pair well with the soybean? So oftentimes with, you, you wanna have a companion that, especially if you have a legume, you're gonna to wanna to have a non-legume companion. Um, okay. They're gonna they're going to pair nicely because one of the things that happens too, when the plants are connected by the mycorrhizal fungi, you can get plant to plant nutrient exchange. So the nitrogen that's in the legume can flow not just in, the nitrogen's being fixed in the roots of the legume, can flow not just into the legume, but it can also flow into the non-legume. And then you're keeping more of that nitrogen in the organic form because you're keeping it more in different plants. And at the same time, you're stimulating the bacteria to do more nitrogen fixation because now it's having to feed two organisms as opposed to feeding one. That's what I always thought because I, Thank you. See, I always thought that if you were to put like a cereal rye with a pea plant, you would force that pea to fix even more nitrogen mm -hmm. because that cereal rye is going to want to take some of that nitrogen or wants to take all of it, probably. Yeah. 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 So, you're, so you're simulating that to happen. Yes. Yeah. See, that this is what I'm talking about, how we've got to think about how to do things out here. Um, uh, oats and alfalfa, your friend there in Canada. I think that will work. I know it mm -hmm. will work. 
We're doing soybeans and wheat here. We're doing peas and wheat. Um, I haven't really experimented with uh, something with corn yet. I don't know, maybe fava beans. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what would work. I think they would. Um, you know, I think we, I think that's going to be the future, Chris, is, is co-mingling our cash crops mm-hmm. and trying to figure out those best symbiotic relationships. Yeah. And we do a lot of that up here in, in Canada. It's growing where we're doing um, polycropping or, or intercropping. Uh, and there's, there are a lot of people who are growing canola and peas. And it actually, we refer to it as peola. Um, so it's a canola and peas <laughs> together is peola. Um, and uh, there's a lot of interest too in, um, so growing canola with with a number, you know, canola and wheat, canola and peas seem to work about the best, but also uh, integrating flax as an intercrop. And oh, there's yeah. some interesting things with flax as, as an intercrop. Um, it does a lot of this plant to plant nutrient sharing. Um, and uh, so you could get these, this exchange, not just of nitrogen, but you can get exchange of copper and boron and molybdenum and other micronutrients uh, between the plants. Um, so when one plant has excess or it has you know, more than enough, it can easily shift that. And, and what this is, is you know, I think of this sort of like you know, a, an Amazon delivery system where the one plant puts in an order what they need from, from Amazon or what you need from you know, DoorDash. Yeah or whatever it is yeah. it's your delivery system you put in the order what you needed today and it's going to deliver it you know to your roots to but your it, door but it wants paid too it wants something in return. it wants to get paid exactly everybody's got to get paid and the payment yeah. the currency is carbon yep so you know when you've got the peas and rye going together the rhizobium that's in the peas that's fixing nitrogen isn't just getting carbon from the P, it's also going to be getting some resources, some carbon from the rye. And that yeah. carbon is coming through yeah. the mycorrhizal fungi okay. into the roots. Okay, so, okay, like there's so many questions. Okay, so now how important is the carbon to nitrogen ratio then? Can we get, I mean, cereal rye is a great crop. It's the crop I go to every time because when you get late in the season, it's always going to be there for you. You can plant it. It'll more than likely survive the winter. But that is a very high carbon source. So mm-hmm. what what we have to be, we got to think about more balance here too, right? Yes. Yeah. We want to think about more balance in, in the carbon to nitrogen ratio, but we don't want to, you know, a lot of times what we'll do is again, we think we need to add additional nitrogen. Um, or, you know, in, in, uh, in some of our livestock systems, uh, you know, where you've got some alfalfa and you want to, you know, continue to have a lot of nitrogen fixers in, in that soil. And the problem is again, that, that nitrogen, that form of nitrogen is toxic. And so there's other microbes in the soil. So part of that nitrogen, you want to go into the bodies of the plants and the microbes, but there are other microbes in the soil that when the levels of nitrate get too high in the soil, they actually 
prevent nitrogen fixers, both the free living and the symbiotic nitrogen fixers from fixing nitrogen. Oh, wow. So you can't, you can't, you know, people have talked about, well, why don't I add nitrogen fertilizer to my legume crop and then build up, just build up a huge amount of nitrogen in my soil. Yeah. But again, because that nitrogen is toxic to all life, the soil microbial community won't allow that to happen. Yeah. So it doesn't allow those nitrogen fixers to fix any more nitrogen. So when so you, you get, actually, and this goes into the carbon to nitrogen ratio, if you get it too low, you won't get nitrogen fixation. Yeah. Wow. So you actually are going backwards then. You, you think you're doing something good, but you're going backwards. Mm -hmm. So, uh, oh, I had another thought. I just lost it. Um, she said something there. Um, well, maybe I'll think of it. So let's talk about other relationships that you think are important we should be monitoring. What are a couple other relationships? Um, so again, I think one of the, the things that we really need to get a better understanding is the relationships of animals livestock, yeah. but, but also other, other animals, any animal on the plant and then on the microbial community, because what, what ends up happening is the plant's response when, when you have an animal either walking, even walking through the field, it's going to have an impact on those plant leaves. You're going to do some damage and the amount of damage that you do, you don't want to do, again, going back to that FIST acronym, the, the frequency, intensity, right. scale, and timing. You don't want to do the damage, too much damage at the wrong time when the plant isn't doing a lot of photosynthesis so that it can regrow or it can close off those wounds and protect itself. You want right. to make sure that you don't have overgrazing and, and too frequent of damage because the plant then doesn't have enough resources to be able to survive that. So you wanna right. be looking at, we wanna have a certain amount of damage because the plant response, this, is, this goes to where I think of basically what we're trying to do in regenerating our soils is to create soils that are gonna perform like gold medal winning Olympic athletes. And if you're, we're training our soils, you're out there planting soybeans today, but you're training your soil. That's what yeah. you, that's, that's what your goal is. You're training your soil so that it's, it's going to be fed on a consistent basis. It doesn't have to go through feast and famine types right. of periods. You're training your soil so that, um, you know, it's got a diversity of food to be able to, to build the muscle structure and to build what a, what a good athlete needs to have. And with an athlete, you want to do exercise and exercise is you're basically damaging muscle fibers so that those muscle fibers will have to be, you tear muscle when you, when you exercise, you don't want to exercise to injury. You don't want to have too big of a tear, but you have these minor tears in muscle fibers so that the muscles start to 
regrow and build up and elongate and do all of those things that you're wanting right. to do. The, the exercise that we do for our soil is when there is something happening to the plant that is gonna trigger the plant to have to put more carbon below ground. And it has to put more carbon below ground when it needs some mineral nutrients. So in response to damage, if you need to wall off part of your leaf tissue because your leaf got damaged, you're gonna need to create the, the wall. Part of that wall is carbon, but part of that wall structure you're creating is also going to have nitrogen and sulfur and phosphorus and other micronutrients and macronutrients, those different molecules that have right. to wall that off. So that is, you know, it's, it's sort of like, I think of like this for us, if we, if our skin gets damaged, we get cut, we have our bodies produce clotting factors and they produce antibiotics and they, you know, all of these things, these complex molecules that need that, that aren't just made of carbon, but you need, your right. body needs to now utilize additional mineral resources. The plant needs to do that. And where the plant gets those mineral resources from the soil, and it needs to buy those resources by giving the soil carbon. So if we have uh. animal impact managed in the right way, we can drive more carbon going below ground and feeding more of the microbial community. Right. So that's right. what it is that we're looking for with that. And I think if we get a better understanding of that, and even, you know, we're, so we're talking about grazing animals, but I think we even need to be exploring some of this on response to various types of insects, not just beneficial insects, but also responses to predatory insects. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, or response, responses to not predatory insects, but, but to damaging insects, to pathogens and those types of things. And, and one of the reasons why this can be important is that when it is that we're, we're doing this, again, that damage that happens to the leaves on the part of an insect, that triggers a response on, on the part of the plant. And the plants, one of the, the things, and going back to nutrition, the things that are produced by the plant in response to that damage, one of the suite of molecules that are produced are antioxidants. Antioxidants are important for cell wall or cell membrane integrity. They're important to, so, so when you do damage to that cell wall, you make more antioxidants. And so when we're trying to improve the nutritive quality of our food, we're trying to get more antioxidants and polyphenolics in our food. And we need to have the damage for that to be done. So our breeding process to breed for high yield has resulted in food that is not as nutritious because the plant doesn't have the time or energy to make those complex biomolecules but the way that we manage and coddle the plants by managing uh, the impacts of pathogens, impacts of insects, impacts of, of animals, managing that, those impacts, 
also reduces the amount of antioxidants and polyphenolics that are formed by the plants as well. Everything has unintended consequences, everything. Yes. Everything. Yeah. Wow. And that's why pollinators are beneficial. I mean, to, a, to the plant, the whole idea of a pollinator is, is it's damage to the plant. The pollinator is stealing something from the plant. And that damage like that. is resp the response to that is that the plant has to make these more complex biomolecules to withstand that damage. You know, a, an insect, it, it, it doesn't weigh a lot, but on an individual leaf, you know, a bee yeah. sitting on, on the leaf or on the flower is going to damage the cell of the flower. It's going to extract nectar. It's going to, all of those things are carbon costs to the plant. Yeah. But it's a good thing because that that's, again, that's the exercise. That's how the plant becomes a better plant. Stronger, healthier. Yeah. Stronger, healthier. Yeah. yeah. It's not the stupidest and weakest among us. Yeah. Well, typically a pathogen, when it comes in, it's going to attack the weakest, the weakest thing there is. Mm -hmm. Yes. So you've got to keep that health in your in your system. I mean that you know, we've gone years now without pesticides or insects, none of that for years. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I mean, you know, knock on wood, I I, I don't know if we'll have a, an outbreak of something. We probably will, but uh, we tip, typically seem to, to fare fairly well. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah. Um, all right. And, and that's that plant building the resilience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Rachel, you got another question there? Yep, I have I have several more here. Um, okay, so here is another one. It says when the plant by exudation within the rhizosheath with bacteria and archaea produce nitrogen, what is the life of that rhizosheath in and nutrients after plant is harvested? That's a really good question. And I don't think we've got sort of a specific timing on that, the life of that. Uh, it, it does really very much depend on how much um, is going into the different living organisms that you have. And so what happens through this cycle is that you've got in that rise of sheep, you've got fungi and bacteria primarily that are gonna be there and they're gonna absorb that nitrogen and then they're gonna get eaten by other organisms when, when they die and start to decay. And so part of that nitrogen is gonna go into those other organisms and part of that nitrogen is then gonna get mineralized. And then, you know, and that keeps happening and, and, and slowly it isn't, it isn't sort of a linear one directional type of thing. It's, it's a lot of complex cycles and circles that are involved in there. And the more that you can have more of these cycles and circles, the longer you're going to be able to keep that nitrogen in that rhizosphere environment for not just the annual, that one annual that formed that first rhizosheath, but also subsequently along the lines in being able to do that. And if with that rise of sheath as that annual or as the, even in a perennial 
as the roots that are helping to form that rhizosheath, as they start to decay and um, the, the rhizosheath becomes a little bit less active from root exudates, it starts to form the, the soil aggregates. And so you start getting those pellets in the soil. And when you have those aggregates, the aggregate architecture in, in that design helps to stabilize the materials that are in that aggregate. So if you get a rhizosheath converted into an aggregate, you now have kept that nitrogen and those nutrients there for a longer period of time. Very stable too. Yes, very stable. And, and again, the beauty of the aggregates, all of this, it's, it's indirectly involved in providing nutrients to the plants, whether those plants are you know growing at that period of time or growing in the next season, but it also is trying to create, they, they're eco-engineers, they create that environment with those aggregates and create the, the porosity and the structure to soil. So between the aggregates, you're gonna get this open pore space that's gonna help for water infiltration. It's gonna help for water holding capacity. All of these things are gonna be benefited in that entire system. Right, so, okay. So then is that, that nitrogen, does that, that becomes available for, so like we, we planted that cash crop, it didn't utilize all that nitrogen. We now follow with the cover crop. They can go out and seek and find and, and sequester that nitrogen now. Yeah, yeah. It's going to continue to cycle through. And again, like I said, with the, the whole sort of Amazon or DoorDash yeah. or, or, you know, whatever, whatever delivery system that you have, the way that this works is when, it, when those nutrients are in the organic forms or when they're bound to organic matter or inside soil aggregates, um, what happens is that they are now in a more exchangeable form so that they could become, they're not, they're not readily available, but they're, they can easily become available. So like people who talk, the, the Haney test talks about this whole potentially mineralizable fraction. And that's what you're doing is you're essentially making that available. But it, the beauty of this, when you're allowing for the biology and the chemistry of the soil to do this, when the, the chemistry, physics and, and biology are all working together, is it is done very much like that Amazon or DoorDash delivery. It's on demand when you need it, hot and ready to the door and not more than you need at that point in time. And so yeah. you, then you don't have what I talked about with those uh, other bacteria, when you have too much nitrogen in the soil, they stop nitrogen fixation from occurring. They're not gonna be very active if we keep that balance and that cycling in the on-demand and don't let that happen very often. Right, right. Now that I see is probably of what you, everything you've talked about tonight, that is probably one of the most detrimental things you've talked about is shutting those nitrogen fixers off. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. And that's really why I, you know, that, that sixth soil health principle that I have that talks about managing your inputs, 
I think is, is so key. The, the, the yeah. two soil health principles that I would say, if you're going to focus on them is the keeping it green and growing, because that automatically yeah. is going to lead you to diversity and better armor to the soil and, you know, forage, potential right. forage for livestock. But the other, the other really big key one is that whole idea of managing inputs. So, well, we could go on for hours. Let's, let's try to get to some questions. Rachel, you got another question there? Yes. We'll, we'll have to have um, you on again, Chris. Don't worry. <laughs> um, if a cover crop is terminated chemically, do the chemicals end up in the biological network? That's another great um, question. That is another great question. And uh, the answer to that question is yes. Um, they can end up in the in the microbiological network. Uh, the Roundup or glyphosate is one of the you know major used herbicides, um, and uh, it was originally patented as an antimicrobial. It uh, is essentially something that uh, the way that it works is it disrupts um, it, various types of molecular chemical pathways, biochemical pathways in living organisms. And so um, the two main things that glyphosate will do is disrupt this molecular pathway. And uh, it does this, one of the ways that it does this is being by, by being a very strong chelator. So when glyphosate was first used, they thought that it would become inactivated when it would get to the soil because it's a very strong chelator and chelators bind metals and there's a high concentration of metals in the soil so that it would mine those metals and become inactivated. And that process, that chelation process has a negative impact on the biology because you're essentially keeping those, those those metals, those micronutrients from those living organisms and disrupting this biochemical pathway. So we know that we're gonna have various types of, of downstream impacts. I mean, again, you know, it's, it's the unintended consequences. Everything, everything has action reaction. It, yep. You can't get away from it. It is the way that it is. And, you know, we talk about even people who are talking about like collecting CO2, densifying it and injecting it below ground in, you know, two miles or three miles down. And, you know, it's not going to have any impact in there. And it's like, there is living, there are living organisms there. You may not yeah. think that they're there, but they're there. They, they yeah. are doing a certain job and you're going to have a reaction to that. So every action has a reaction. And what we're trying to do in talking about managing is managing those reactions for either distributing that impact across a wide diversity of organisms. So each organism doesn't feel so much pain individually or reducing that amount of pain that is, is happening within the system. And, and that's really what we're trying to do with management. Um, you know, we, we are trying to do some things that are, are natural and natural and nature based, but agriculture, like I was talking about with the plants producing 
Agriculture is an unnatural act. We can't get around that. We are, we are requiring the plants to perform in an unnatural manner and we're requiring the animals to perform in an unnatural manner. But we can right. utilize natural processes and natural cues and natural actions to help to, again, reduce the overall impact on the system of that non-natural act. Yeah. Well, I'd like to ask an additional question on top of the question that was just asked. Are, Chris, are there organisms in the soil that will eat that glyphosate and help dissipate it out over time? So yes, there are organisms that for, for glyphosate as well as other uh, chemicals and other herbicides and insecticides, there are organisms that do um, eat that. Uh, in many cases, uh, some of the byproducts that are produced uh, along the way of the decom decomposition of many of these chemicals can oftentimes be worse and have more adverse oh. impacts than oh. the chemicals themselves. Um, so, you know, that's something too, as we look at the chemistry of these different types of compounds that we're putting into the soil environment, what are they breaking? What could they be potentially breaking down into? And yeah. we need I never, to be- never thought about that. Yeah, yeah. We need to be cautious. So again, it's, it's action reaction. Yeah, 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 so much. Okay, all right, Rachel, you got another one? Yes, um, in regards to too many legumes and too low of a seed in ratio, does soil type matter? We have seen a need for more in on our heavy clay soils. What are we doing wrong and how can we get better? They're in a 35 inch rainfall area. Okay. And that's, and, and, and so what ends up happening is that your, your soil types do matter and how they how they matter is how they impact the, the chemistry that is happening. So sand is pretty much inert. Uh, clay minerals are very reactive. They have binding sites and the binding sites on the, both the surface of a clay mineral as well as interlayer binding sites. So you can get things, when you get things that can be bound to clay minerals, sometimes they can be bound so tightly that it is difficult for them to be released. And that's where you're gonna get nitrogen in, in some cases that it's gonna be bound within that mineralogy that it's not gonna be very easy for it to be released. It's not gonna be readily in that exchangeable or potentially mineralizable form. It's, it's now gonna be bound up in a way. Um, the, the best thing that we can do, and, and this is why organic matter and, and soil itself, that carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, that organic component is so incredibly important is because as we build up organic matter in the soil, those binding sites and the clay minerals are going to be bound with organic matter. And you get, I, I refer to this as, I talked about this at one point of uh, what are called organic mineral complexes. And so you have like a clay mineral and then you have a piece of organic matter that's bound to the clay mineral 
And then you can have nutrients, nitrates and phosphates and sulfates and copper and molybdenum and all of these things that will be bound to the organic component that's bound to the clay mineral. And that can help to stabilize that organic matter. So that organic matter doesn't get broken down very quickly, but all of the things that are bound to the organic matter, when those nutrients are bound to the organic matter, they're more exchangeable than when they're bound to the clay minerals. So as we build up organic matter in our soils, we are going to keep those nutrients. We're going to cover those binding sites on the clay minerals with organic matter. And we're also going to bind because the organic matter is going to be sharing electrons. Organic matter shares electrons more than you have these strong bonds. And so when you share the electrons, it is more readily exchangeable. So there's more sites on the organic matter when it binds to the clay minerals that can open up and now be exchangeable to those nutrients. The other thing is, is when you get organic matter that binds to the clay mineral, you can also get expansion of the clays. So instead of them being really tight bound in the interlayers and very compacted, so the heavy clay soils are often very compacted soils, is when you get organic matter that gets bound to the clay mineral, it opens up that clay mineral so you don't have the same level of compaction that you would normally have. So building wow, up organic matter is the best thing that you can do. And with so 35 inches of rainfall, you've got a lot of free sip to be building organic matter. Again, get something green growing as many days as the year. That's right. Mm -hmm. Chris, thank, oh my gosh, the way you explain that, that you're just, you're so good. I, I'm glad, I'm so glad you're on this show. Thank you. Uh, okay. Rachel, what else do you have? So I have two more questions here. Um, does fulvic acid help slash assist to contain higher amounts of carbon in our aggregates and biochar? Um, so those are, those are good questions. Um, and fulvic acid and biochar are different forms of organic matter, and they can be a part of the aggregates and helping to form those aggregates. And again, like I was talking about, they can have, depending on the type of fulvic acid or how the biochar is formed, they will have more or, or less binding sites. So you're gonna want to, when, when it is that you're adding organic compounds like humix or fulvix or biochar, you want them to be in reactive forms so that they can have more of those binding sites. And then that's gonna help to, again, build up organic matter in the soil and build up carbon because when they have those binding sites, that fulvic acid or the biochar or humic acid or even carbohydrates and proteins is going to be more resistant to decomposition. Um, typically in the soil, organic matter gets decomposed very quickly by uh, enzymatic reactions. And if you remember back in, in you know, high school biology or chemistry and they talk about enzymes and it's a lock and key type of mechanism. 
that you've got the the organic the enzyme fits to a particular type of organic matter when that organic matter is in that form. But if you were to actually get that organic matter to bind to a nutrient or to bind to a clay mineral, now it changes the way that it looks and that key can't fit in. The key fit in this way, but now like this, the key can't get in there and do that decomposition. So you don't get that type of, you, you can build up organic matter if we can get that organic matter to get bound up in the soil. So I refer to this as basically the biology and the chemistry and the physics of the soil are all trying to drive that organic matter to become biologically, chemically, and or physically occluded, meaning that it's it's occluded, it's not readily available to those enzymes to break it down. Um, that makes total sense. When you explain it like that, that, that makes total sense. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, Okay, Rachel, you got one more? Yes, I have one more question, but there's multiple parts to it. Um, so um, Ethan wants to know if there's a list of plants that best sequesters for each region? And if so, where can such info on these plants be found or are there more studies needed? Um, so there, we do need to, to continue to try and get more information about how all of these processes function together. Uh, typically the plants that are going to be best for sequestration for carbon are gonna be perennials they're gonna be deeper rooting plants um, and oftentimes going to be grasses more so than are going to be uh, legumes or, or oil seeds. So you're, that, those are typically the plants that you'd be looking for. Um, and when you're looking at their grasses, uh, a lot of the, um, again, the deeper rooting grasses that are more of the warm season grasses are gonna do a better job than the cool season grasses. They have uh, some shallower roots and you're not gonna be able to get uh, the sequestration as far down as you would like to see. Um, there's some really interesting things that you know, we're, we're starting to look at. And again, you know, kind of going back to this breeding thing, uh, people are interested in looking at things like Kernza and perennial wheats, um, the perennial versions of the grasses, the annual grasses that we use. And those plants were more associated with the biological community, which also helps with that carbon sequestration. So the, the more that we've sort of bred and annualized the, the perennials in our system, the less that they're gonna be putting carbon below ground, growing their roots extensively and working with the biological community. And so you don't get as much carbon sequestration in those systems. Wait a minute, you said in a perennial system, you don't get, is that what you just said? In, in, a, in a system where you have, if you have cool season perennials. So oh, if you okay. have, you wanna have more warm season perennials, you don't get as much. But yes, okay. in a perennial I, system, you're gonna get that more. And I should put another caveat on this is, yes, the perennials will work this way, but, if the perennials aren't, if there's no 
impact, if the plant, perennials don't have to exercise, meaning there's no impact, the reason we got, you know, the deep, rich soils in our prairies was that we had the deeper, rich prairies are mostly um, uh, tall to mid-season or tall to, to mid uh, grass prairies, not short grass right. prairies, but the tall to mid. Right. And that they had an impact on them. They had some sort of damage that would happen to them on, buffalo, on different bases. The buffalo, fire, insects, all of those things, you need to have that. So in some of the systems where we have some land that we've put into uh, CRP um, and putting perennials on, onto that land, one of the, the things that happened because we weren't grazing that land and typically it's, it's we're surrounded by agricultural land, we would control fire and surrounded right. by agricultural land, we would control insects. We didn't allow for that damage to happen to that perennial. And so oh. the idea behind that was we put land into CRP with the thought that we would actually sequester more carbon in that CRP land than we have. It hasn't been a complete failure, but it hasn't driven us to do that. So, you know, one of the things that I'd like to see us advocate for, um, I currently I live in Canada, but I still, you know, feel for the US on a lot of things. My dad still farms in the US and my nephew and, and brother-in-law do. So, I, you know, I'd like to see us manage our, our CRP acreage as well because that is what we need to do. Utilizing it for grazing, paying, anything that we're going to be doing with that that's going to be some sort yeah. of management is going to be beneficial. I mean, what, what better way to get someone started with regenerative practices than on CRP ground? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I've seen a lot of activity across the bottom of my phone, Rachel. There must be some, some comments or questions here on this latest topic. Yes, um, we had Ethan just thanking um, Chris for getting to all of his questions and how much he really appreciated it. Um, he says he wishes that there was more specific numbers to carbon sequestration per plant, but indeed more plant studies are needed. Um, and then we had a, a new question. Um, Mark wants to know your thoughts on feeding and growing the microbial community with different forms of carbon maximizing more diversity, humic acid, seafood, hydro, hydrosate that has chitinese and organic amino forms of N. Hopefully I pronounced all that correctly. Yep. <laughs> Not bad. Uh, we, we do a, a seriously a horrible thing in, in science oftentimes of, of coding our things in language that isn't always well understood or easy to pronounce. So, um, you know, and, and that's why I like doing these things and having these conversations because I want to make it make sense, even with the, yeah, with, with the big words. So, um, you know, I feeding, so feeding, again, putting into your uh, bioreactors, into your compost pile, uh, into your soil mix, these, these different types of amendments. Um, there, there are advantages to that because again, it's gonna be defeating a more diverse community of microorganisms. You also, though, you know, everything I also wanna caution with is that, you know, some of these things that you might be adding 
is that stimulating a community that doesn't really or shouldn't really be active anyway. So because we don't know, and, and again, I'm not trying to say, you know, it's sort of, because we don't know what all of the interactions and diversity that we need to have exists, you, you're better off probably having a more diverse mix of food that you're giving them. Um, again, you know, when we talk about putting in seafood or we talk about um, the uh, putting in kelp or other things like that, it, I'm not quite sure all the time how good of a role that can have. Um, and, you know, oftentimes we do those things because they have some higher concentrations of micronutrients that are coming from uh, the salts that are in those biological organisms, what they were. And so, you know, you're, you're trying to add micronutrients to the soil. And so looking at what's going to be in the process of breaking that down and making that available um, I'm not always sure if that's overall going to be the benefit that we're looking for. Um, I understand. I understand. Well, I'll tell you, I, I've got one last thing I'd like to talk about, Chris, and I'm going to let you go. I mean, we're almost two and a half hours now. Um, I think, and, and first of all, thanks for the questions. Those were great questions from the audience. We appreciate that. Thank you so much. Uh, Okay, Chris, I think that in this world that, that we're trying to be in on our farm here, we're, 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 we've taken away all these inputs. We're trying to do this with no, no tillage at all. And I think I see a progression. I think it's real. I mean, we started this journey, it was broadleaf weeds. Now we're moving into the grasses. Uh, I think shrubs and trees are next, but that will occur because we will, you know, we'll continually mow or whatever to not let that happen, but, but here's my question. Right now on our farm, we are really fighting foxtail. I still think it's part of this progression. Tell me what we're doing wrong and what can we do to prevent these, these late outbreaks of foxtail, late season outbreaks. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's, it's hard to know Again, I, I, I don't know yeah, yeah. What, what, what all is going on there and, and, and what might be happening. Um, you know, I think that, that it, is, it is all a part of, of various types of progressions. And again, because we're not, like you said, you're not doing it in a complete form that a natural ecosystem would do with shrubs and trees and all of these other plants that would be there. Um, you know, that you'd have different types of controls. So you are right. going to be getting some of these invasive species that are going to be coming in, some of these weeds that are going to be coming in. The best way that we can go about helping to manage for weeds is managing it in such a way that you are making the weed as weak as possible. So, you know, when it's having active growth, if there are some ways to be able to mow it or set it back as much as possible or be grazing it, any of those types of things to make it very weak, but then also helping to, to add in competition. So you, you make it weak 
and then you provide it with the greatest level of competition. So something that's going to be actively growing at the same time, you know, you weaken, you weaken the foxtail and then you have something that's going to be actively growing at that same time um, that, that you would have in there. So that's, that's the way that I would look at, at trying to manage it. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, discussion and I think there's a lot of merit behind, um, you know, the, the whole concept of when weeds talk and the, you know, some of the minerals that are in the soil and the microbes and how they're going to be working right. with the weeds. And I think that there's, I, I do believe there's something to that. Part of the thing is, is that, again, that level of complexity that we don't understand about what's all happening in the soil, that I, I think we make certain assumptions about what weeds are telling us that isn't the full picture because we don't understand so much. So what I like to, to do again is to, to get rid of a weed is to provide as much competition for it as you can. Oh. Make it weak and then utilize the other resources, the other plants to, to take it out. Yeah, and see, I think, I hope you agree with what I'm getting ready to say. We are trying to do that that competition aspect with the canopy from the cash crop, okay? Mm -hmm. Because at that point in time, I don't, we can't get up 20 inch row corn or, or seven and a half inch row soybeans and intercede some kind of a cover crop. So we're trying to get that density of the, of the cash crop canopy to do that job for us. Right, right. Yeah, and you know, the, the density of the cash crop canopy um, you know, putting in companion crops, um, various, you know, different types of, of inter-row cover crops or, or companion crops, or, you know, again, I think too, like I said, you know, up in Canada, there's a lot of people who are doing this, this polycropping, um, intercropping, and you have multiple cash crop species growing at yeah. the same time. And I think that's also right. where we're going to be able to help to manage some of those competition issues with, with the weedy species that we're seeing. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, uh, you know, we've, we've, it's like we really have, you know, we, we haven't invented anything new here. We're just trying to remember what we've forgotten over all the years here. Mm -hmm. And you go back to the, uh, the Native American Indian and they were doing the, the uh, three, the three sisters drop, you know, and yeah. we've gotten away from that. And we're trying on this farm to think more like that and use these companion crops or co-mingle, whatever the word is you want. I don't care what it is. And try and figure out how to grow multiple species at the same time. And then either A, find a buyer that will take them as, as a mix or B, separate them and sell them each as their individual type commodity. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I totally agree. And I think that like you, the future is going to be these mixes and the, the best thing that we can do for agriculture and agricultural engineering is figuring out how to better plant and manage the mixes while they're growing and be able to separate right. the seeds when we go through the harvest. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. 
Well, Chris, this has been amazing. Absolutely amazing. I hope you'll come back sometime because there's so many other things we can talk about. Um, but would you please just take us home now and just give us a couple minutes of some final thoughts that maybe we didn't touch on or or just what recommendations that you would have for us out here. So please just take us home. Well, I think, you know, again, like you said, nothing, nothing really new, but I think that it really is this whole idea, again, of we have a tremendous amount of potential as a species to be able to regenerate the soil to be able to feed ourselves healthy, nutritious food. We have a huge amount of potential to do this. I'm, I consider myself to be a pessimistic optimist, meaning that I am incredibly optimistic about our potential, but I am also at the same time, very pessimistic about our willingness to act. And willingness to act is oftentimes also tied to education and knowledge. And so I thank everybody for uh, listening to this and everybody, you know, listening to the other people that you've had on this podcast and going out and getting that education and that information because right. our, our potential is tremendous, but we are only going to actualize that potential if we have the right amount of knowledge to be able to right. do that. And so I encourage people to learn from each other and, and to talk and communicate and always ask why, always ask questions. Why, why, why? Because then you're gonna start figuring out what, a little bit of what's happening. Um, so thank you very much. And, and yeah. thank you everybody for being on this. And, yeah, well, Chris, again, thank you, and, and I hope we can do this again someday, but uh, I really respect you, and I, I just admire everything you're doing, so thank you for what you're doing for this industry, and thank you for being on this podcast, so that's all I've got for tonight, folks, and oh my gosh, I hope if you didn't listen tonight, don't worry, these are recorded. Uh, we will get this out on all of the, the social media sites as soon as possible. This has been awesome. Chris, thank, thank you so much. Thank you, Rick. And, and thank you, Rachel. And thanks, everybody, for, for attending. And good luck to you all, all right. this spring. I know it's been a rough one, but yeah, we'll get, we'll get her done. <laughs> it, always it always gets done. Yeah. The most important thing is to be safe. So Everyone, thank yes. you. Everyone, good night. And thanks for listening. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.